Although we didn't read it, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel ends in a very dramatic fashion, leaving a really big question. See, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel contains one of the most dramatic, shocking, shameful episodes that we ever read in Scripture of one of God's servants. Chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, if you have time to read a letter later, tells the story of David and his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. This comes in a time in David's life where he is seeing a lot of success. David has been faithful for many, many years. He's been uh, near to the presence of the Lord, walking with him day by day as the kingdom becomes his. Although anointed as a child, it's decades before David eventually ascends to the throne. And all the while, he's waiting patiently for the Lord to deal with Saul in his time. And now it's come to David's ascendancy. He's, he's on the throne. He's in Jerusalem. He's in the palace. He's experiencing prosperity in his life. He's experiencing success on the battlefield. He is the king over all of Israel. But rather than putting him in a place of thankfulness, and of continued faithfulness to the Lord, where this is taken, David is into a place of arrogance, into a place of pride, where, as the story tells us in chapter 11, he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Chapter 11, it starts with this comment that, you know, in spring, in the time when kings go out to battle, David stayed back in Jerusalem. David's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's not acting like a king. He's acting like someone that deserves everything. You guys go and fight the battles. I did that. Now I'm just going to sit here in my palace. That attitude of arrogance leads him to think that he can have whatever he wants. So then one night as he's having a little walkabout on his roof, he sees a beautiful woman. Not uncommon to have a walkabout on your roof. And in that day, not too uncommon to see someone bathing on their roof. That's where things like that happened. But it is a little bit uncommon for the king to not just look and see that that is happening, but to long for that woman, to send for that woman, to have her come to his palace, to sleep with her. And David does that with Bathsheba. Having had what he wants, he sends her away, but later gets the news. She's pregnant. Now, David knew who her husband was. It was Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah the Hittite was not a stranger to David. David knew Uriah very well. Uriah was one of the men who, when David was on the run from Saul, this group of guys came around, and they believed that David was the anointed king over Israel. And they literally saved his life. And these men became David's mighty men. They're famous for their exploits throughout First and Second Samuel. If, if David was King Arthur, these would be the guys around his round table. If there was banners posted throughout Jerusalem of, of kind of the heroes of the day, the guys that are the ones riding in front when the battle parade comes through after a victory, these are the guys, the mighty men. Why was Bathsheba in sight of David? Because Uriah was such a close companion to David that their home was near the palace. Now David knew Uriah. And so he immediately realizes he's got to do something about this problem. 
So he calls Uriah back from the battle. Uriah was where he was supposed to be. David was hanging out back in Jerusalem. Uriah is on the front lines. So David calls Uriah back from the battle to, to get a report about how things are going on the battlefield. He gets the report, but then really his desire is that Uriah will go home and sleep with his wife, and that'll give at least enough public impression that Uriah's been home, and so nobody will think twice about this baby that's born. But Uriah remembers a standard that David set for his soldiers. If you look back in 1 Samuel, one of the things that David makes very clear is that when his soldiers are out in battle, when they're on an expedition, they don't stay with any women. They don't touch women. They are singularly focused on their mission. So Uriah, remembering that, remains obedient to the thing that David had called him to. He says, no, my my friends are all in battle. It's not right for me to go home and be with my wife. So as a man of honor, he sleeps on David's doorstep while his wife is just down the road. David realizes that this is a problem. This is not going to do. He needs Uriah to go home. He needs Uriah to cover up this sin that he doesn't even know has happened. So he comes up with another crafty scheme. He throws a party. He has a big dinner at his house, a lot of wine and food, and invites people and has Uriah come, gets Uriah a little bit tipsy, thinking, man, after he's had a few drinks, he's definitely headed home to see his wife. Uriah doesn't. <laughs> the shameful thing. This is, this is David, the king of Israel. This is David who wrote so many psalms, praising the Lord for his, his beauty and the, the wonders of his law. And now one of his drunk soldiers is more righteous than him sober. This is the David that we see in chapter 11. Uriah doesn't go home. He's faithful to his pledge. So David realizes that he's got to do something else. And in one of the most shameful, despicable things that we see one of God's servants do in all of Scripture, David sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a secret message. You see, he trusted Uriah. He knew that Uriah was such an honorable man that he could send him with a secret message all the way back to the battlefield and Uriah wasn't going to open it. In that message was Uriah's death sentence. David, in that message, gave instruction to his general Joab. Joab, I want you to put Uriah in in the heat of the battle, in the very front of the battle. And then when the fighting is the worst, I want you to pull back from him so that Uriah is killed. Uriah brings that message to Joab. Joab does according to David's commands, and Uriah is killed. Bathsheba goes through the ritual mourning and then immediately is married to David, and they have the child. And that's where things end up in chapter 11. We might start to think, wait, he's just going to get away with it? This this is what's going to happen, that that David is going to do this awful thing and it's just going to move on? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in a place where there's something in your life and man, you don't want your spouse to know about it? You don't want your friends to know about it. You don't want your flatmates to talk to you about it. You're hoping that you can just quietly exit the stage from that scene of your sinfulness 
and hopefully dodge a bullet of God's wrath. Well, that doesn't happen. 2 Samuel 11 ends with, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, up until now, we've just been hearing the story in chapter 11. But now we see the Lord. So chapter 11 ends with us asking this question, what's going to happen? David's done this thing. Chapter 11 ends with his disobedience and the Lord's displeasure. What happens when the Lord is displeased with one of his servants? Well, what we're going to see as we walk through chapter 12 is the Lord responds in three ways. He sends, he speaks, and he saves. The Lord doesn't sit back from his people, but he sends messengers. He doesn't stay silent, but he speaks to them. And he doesn't leave them in their sins, but he saves them. Let's look at the first point. The Lord sends You know what the worst possible thing that could happen to somebody if you're in sin? If you're you're in habitual sin, if you're in unrepentant sin, if there's something that happened in the past that you know was wrong, or there's something happening in your life that you know is wrong, the worst possible thing is for the Lord to do nothing. Isn't that Romans 1? If you remember that passage in Romans 1, it talks about the wrath of God being poured out. This is God's displeasure, his wrath against sin. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is his displeasure. But how does Romans 1 tell us God expresses his displeasure? If you remember the way that God does that is that he gives them over to their sin. It says that he gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. God gave them over to their shameful lust. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Three times Romans 1 says God simply gave them over. God saw these people running after the lust of their flesh, running after their desires, and the worst possible thing happened. Instead of intervening, he said, okay, if that's what you want, if that's what you want, you want that adulterous relationship? You want that lie? You want that abuse of power that makes you feel so good? You want that ability to abuse your wife? You want this, this, and that? It's all yours. Go for it. That is the Lord's displeasure seen in judgment is that he does nothing, but he leaves people to do everything according to their own will, which is the worst possible thing for them. But he doesn't do that for David. Chapter 12 opens by these words. He says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord didn't give David over to his sin. He could have done that and he would have been justified in doing it because of how wicked David's sin was. But the Lord didn't do that. The Lord sends Nathan. 
by his grace, he's not going to allow David to sin. Hebrews 12 calls this the painful discipline of the Lord. And it's good for David because it's going to bring the fruit of righteousness, but it's going to hurt. Now, we don't know how Nathan was sent. There's some times in the Bible where a a prophet is sent with a message, and, and we know exactly how it happens. You can think of Moses in the burning bush when he's sent to the people of Israel with the message for them and to the, uh, rebuke the uh, Egyptian pharaoh. There's a dramatic conversation with the Lord. Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is being commissioned to his ministry among the Israelite people to rebuke them and call them to renewal and faithfulness. Well, we don't see that here, and, and we don't know why. It seems that maybe that, you know, that, those were dramatic, multi-year national ministries that these prophets were being called to, and they had a remarkable calling that was in line with the breadth of their ministry. But here to Nathan, I mean to David, in a personal sin, we see a simple calling. And I want us to see something there because I think that throughout Scripture and throughout experience, what it would tell us is that that is the primary way that the Lord works. And that is the primary way that he sends is not through a voice from the clouds of heaven, but through the simple leading of his spirit. See, if Nathan was a man of the Lord, it it wouldn't have taken much for him to know that someone had to go and talk to David. David did these things in secret, but it was quickly going to be the talk of the town, wasn't it? Again, one of the, the biggest heroes, the biggest names in the country, doesn't get killed in battle and no one notices. Everyone would have known that Uriah died. And remember, his plan to have Uriah sleep with his wife didn't work. So now all of a sudden, there's this child that can't be Uriah's. And David immediately married her right after Uriah died. David's sin isn't secret anymore. It's out in the open. So the Lord leads Nathan. Like maybe he's leading some of you. You know a friend who is caught in sin. And you're waiting for someone else to be the one the Lord sends. But maybe he's sending you. You know Solomon, King Solomon, would later write in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Another translation says, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now think about that in light of this story. Who is David's friend in this story? Is it Joab, the general, the one who obediently took the order from David and did everything he asked him to do, who was faithful to be out in the battlefield? Was Joab David's loyal companion, his his trusted aide? No. By kissing the ring of his authority and silently standing by while David murdered one of his most faithful soldiers, Joab was David's enemy. What about those attendants? The attendants that brought Bathsheba. David says, I want that woman. Bring her to me. His attendants go and bring her to the palace. They're they're the ones that shut the door with David and Bathsheba inside. They're the ones that a little while later see Bathsheba leaving. What were they doing? 
They weren't his friends. They were his enemies by their silence. In verse 17, later in the chapter, we'll see another group of people, the elders. This group of elders from David's household, they they come around him when he's grieving over his sin and he's sad and he's fasting. And the elders come around him to comfort him and to encourage him to eat. Well, where were they? Where were they when David was staying back in Jerusalem instead of being where he was supposed to be, out in the battle? How come no one came to him and said, David, you're not where you're supposed to be? That would have helped a lot. Where were they when David was having drunken parties, having people come to the palace, drink as much as they could? Why, why were none of his elders stepping in and saying, you know, David, this, this has gone too far. This is not the conduct of a king. Where were they when Bathsheba showed that she was pregnant? Where were they when he was getting married? They were kissing him as his enemies. They were not faithful friends to him. The only friend to him here is Nathan. Nathan is the only one, and he's sent by the Lord to speak to David. So are you willing to wound? Are you willing to wound those around you if you consider them your friends or if you consider yourself a faithful friend to others? Are you willing to speak truth to others? Willing to be sent into their lives? Now, this is a very dramatic story. This is one uh, for the ages. Most of the time, sending doesn't involve a conversation where your friend has murdered somebody, hopefully. But it can be just as intimidating to go and speak to a friend about their anger problem. Go to speak to a friend about their strange use of money that seems to border on gluttony. To go to speak to someone about their entertainment habits. To go to speak to someone about what they post on Facebook that you're uncomfortable with. Those are the difficult conversations, but you think Nathan wasn't intimidated? This is the king of Israel. One word from David and Nathan's on the block. Head off. And Nathan's going to come to David, but he's willing to be a friend. He's willing to be faithful. He's willing to let his passion for God's word and his passion for Israel to be a light to the nations, to allow him to go to even those he's most intimidated by and speak to them. And that's the second point. The Lord speaks through those he sends. He doesn't just send him around to to kind of put his arm around the person who's suffering in, in their sin. He sends them with a message. Let's look at the message that, that Nathan gives to David. Nathan starts in a very interesting way in confronting David. He doesn't go straight to the facts and the story, but he, he gives David a little bit of an intro, an opportunity. He tells this story about a certain man in a, in a certain place, and this, this man was a rich man. And, he, um, and there was also a poor man in the city. The poor man had a, a lamb, a sheep. It was very precious to him. The text says, more, as precious as a daughter. But then the rich man has a guest. And not wanting to disadvantage himself, he thinks, I'll just take it from this poor man. Steals his sheep, 
serves it for dinner, David's anger is great. Now you see, this wasn't uncommon for someone to bring a dilemma to the king. The king served as a judge in many cases. He would have to give a decision about what should the penalty be for this problem or how do we solve this issue. So David, leaving aside his own hypocrisy and his own guilt, his own law-breaking, is happy to sit in the, the judge's seat and judge others. And he actually does it pretty well. It's clear that David knew the law as an expert, as kings would do. He quotes basically from the law. From his, uh, we have it in Exodus 22, verse 1. And it states that someone who steals a sheep should pay back fourfold. So David nailed it on that point. Right at the top of his head, he knew exactly what the penalty should be for stealing a sheep. I don't know if you knew that, but that is the penalty for stealing a sheep. But where David missed the mark is that actually the law specifically says in those verses that the thief should not die. It specifically uh, makes a protection for the thief saying that they should pay back fourfold for a sheep, five for an ox, but they shouldn't die. So that's strange. Why, why, did, why did David pronounce death upon this person? We don't know. The text doesn't say. But perhaps some of those feelings aren't unfamiliar to us. Have you ever come across somebody who struggles with the same thing that you do? and you're with your group of friends or, or someone and they're talking about this other person that struggles with that and you're just like, oh, how could they ever? How could they ever do that? That's so stupid. I would never be involved in that. Knowing that you had done the exact same thing last night. We're quick to pronounce judgment on other people, especially when the transgression hits home for us. Maybe because David wanted to die. Maybe because David felt like, man, I wish I could die. I know that's the penalty that I deserve. A life of hypocrisy. A life where you're, you're living a lie. You know that you are guilty, and yet you just have to move on with life and hope that things are okay. No. Death can feel like an easy escape, but... What's clear here is that the spirit has his foot on the nerve of David's conviction. David pronounces a death sentence on this person, even though the man doesn't deserve it, David does. And in doing so, he pronounces that judgment upon himself. Because Nathan speaks. He looks at David, and he says, you are the man. And can, can you even imagine? Can you even imagine the look on David's face? Maybe you've been in a, in a situation like that where, I don't know if it was you or, or you were speaking to somebody or you're just observing it, but we're all familiar with those times when everyone's kind of talking about something, but no one's saying it to the person who needs to hear it. So Nathan does. He says, David, you are the man that stole. You are the guilty one. You know, they say that the, pe 
pen is mightier than the sword, but the mouth is mightier than 10,000 pens. The right thing in the right way said at the right time to the right person is the most powerful thing in the world. And Nathan's done that. With four words, he's utterly decimated the king of Israel. He's exposed the guiltiness of the king. He brings this to David, and he brings the truth to David. He tells him exactly what he did wrong and exactly how he's going to suffer because of it. He critiques David for his lack of thankfulness for God's gifts and his lack of obedience to God's truth. You see, like I said, David had everything. And as it says here in chapter 12, if he wanted more, God says, I would have given you that and as much. I'd give you twice as much as you had. But he wasn't thankful. He wasn't content. He wanted what he wanted, and he was willing even to break God's law to get it. David's lack of contentment, his lack of thankfulness, his willingness to rejoice in the law when it made for good poetry, but put it aside when it kept him from what he wanted, these things led David to his sin. And I really want you, I want you to see how powerful this dichotomy is. David was the spiritual leader of Israel. He was the anointed one. He was the man after God's own heart. And yet even David could find himself in a place of such utter evil. The Lord says he's going to judge David. And he's going to judge him in the same ways that he sinned. David has not been thankful. He's not been content with the things that the Lord has provided. So those very things that David is not content with are going to be the ways that he now suffers. His possessions, his relationships. There's going to be a sword that never is removed from his house. He's going to experience violence. David is willing to break God's law and take someone else's wife. Well, that's going to happen to him. He is going to be shamed. His wives will be taken. This word from the Lord was severe to David. It was a hard word for him to hear, but it was needed. Now, friends, again, I I don't want to come to you today assuming that and, and trying to make you feel like all of you are in the same position as David. Obviously, this is a, a very dramatic moment and scene. But I do want us all to feel the weight of sin and to feel the weight of, even if we haven't murdered somebody, to feel the weight of the reality that someone so close to the Lord could yet be so in sin. And I think in reading this passage, we have to ask ourselves, are we listening? Are we listening to the Lord? The Lord, in his displeasure against sin, like we said, if he is displeased with his children, his discipline is going to look like him sending a message. Are you listening? You're one of the worst air traffic disasters in history. 1983, Madrid, Spain. There's a 747 jumbo jet, about 200 people on board. 
and it's coming in for a landing in Madrid. In the Madrid airport, you, you need to take a specific path to land appropriately. If you, if you don't, then you'll come across an area that's really mountainous and hilly, and there's a lot of wind, and it's dangerous. You need to take a specific way into the airport that avoids that. Well, on this day in 1983, the pilot was coming in, and it was a foggy day. He couldn't see everything exactly right, and he inadvertently made a wrong turn. And he was approaching the airport from exactly the wrong place. He was flying in. He was too low. There was mountains and hills ahead of him. We have the flight recorder. The flight recorder says that the warning sign started going off. The electronic system was telling him, you're too low, you're too low. Pull up, pull up. We also have his response to that. In hearing that warning from his computers, we hear him saying, no, no, bueno, bueno. It's good, it's fine, it's okay, I got this. And then the plane hits the hill, cartwheels down the hills, disintegrates into five pieces, nearly everybody on board is killed, miraculously a couple aren't, but hundreds are. Because he said, no, 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 I got this, I got this, I'm fine. Friends, how, how many of us are doing the same thing? The Lord's sending you messages, sermons on a Friday where you're hearing the word taught and it, it's putting uh, its finger on that precious sin of yours, but you're just trying to think, uh, how does that apply to somebody else? Surely they're doing it worse than I am and so nobody knows about mine and I'm sure it's going to be fine. Or maybe on Facebook, you, you see a link to that article that you know is addressing your favorite sin, and you just keep scrolling. No, if I read that, I'll get convicted. I don't want to read that. Maybe your friends or family have been trying to talk to you about something, but you've been so successful at putting up walls that not only can you not hear it, but they've stopped saying it. You know, maybe they tried at one time to point out to you something, and you just put it back on them. Well, the reason I was angry is because you did this. Well, they're not going to come and talk to you again. Friends, we need to listen. In that and in so many other ways, our tendency is just to say, no, no, bueno, bueno, I'm fine. I'm doing the right thing. So friends, cultivate listening. If you can think back into your life and you can think of times where you did resist someone who was trying to come and speak to you, go to them and repent and say, brother, sister, I'm sorry for the way that I responded when you spoke to me because I want to be a person that's approachable. I want to be a person that you can speak the truth to. David had gotten himself into a place where nobody was willing to talk to him. Nobody was willing to tell him what was going wrong. But he was the one that was responsible. We need to listen when the Lord speaks. Are you woundable? Well, the good news is that it doesn't stop there. 
the Lord sends his messenger, and he sends his messenger with uh, the message of judgment. The truth that that sin cannot continue, and that there is consequences for the sin, and there will be judgment for the sin. But then we see what the Lord is after. He's not after just stomping on David. In his grace, he wants to save David. He wants to restore David. He wants David to come back. David first responds in verse, thir- uh, yeah, in verse 13. David says to Nathan, after all this judgment, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. David gets it. He absolutely gets it. He's not like Adam. Remember Adam in the garden? The Lord says, hey, where are you? I'm looking for you. What happened? How do you know that you're naked? Oh, well, you know, this woman that you gave me, she's the one that some things happened. David doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, hey, Bathsheba's the one that's hanging out on the roof. What am I supposed to do? Uriah's a Hittite. He's not even a real Israelite. It doesn't matter if he dies. David doesn't go there. David says, I've sinned, and I've sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, which is written immediately after this confrontation with Nathan, and so that's some of your homework this afternoon. Go and read Psalm 51. But Nathan says this, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, David knew that the Lord was right to judge him because it was the Lord whom David sinned against. And that's really important for you to catch. Because so much of the time when we sin, our first thoughts go to, okay, how can I manage this? I did something wrong. How can I get everything back to normal? I yelled at my kids again. Okay, how can I, you know, I'll go and buy some ice cream and they'll, get, they'll be happy with that. You know, I, I looked at porn again. Okay, well, I'll just, I'll delete the history. I won't do it again. We're just trying to manage these kind of horizontal consequences and eventualities that come out of our sin. And we fail to remember that it's not primarily other people that we are sinning against. Yes, they feel the consequences of our sin, but it is the Lord who we sin against. It is the Lord whom you are offending with your sin. David also realizes that not only is this problem, this sin that he's done, something that he has done against the Lord, but he also realizes that he in himself is inadequate to overcome it. In Psalm 51, again, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David's saying, not only am I sinning, but I am so by nature unable to do anything but something that's mired in corruption that I have no hope other than the Lord. My sin is against the Lord, and my only hope is the Lord. 
Listen to this plea from Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, what David was after was he was after the Lord. He he had heard the judgment. He knew that his possessions, he knew that his relationships, he knew that his future on this earth was going to never be the same because of what he had done that day. But notice in that prayer, he's not asking for that to be removed. He's not saying, Lord, when you give me a lot of nice stuff again, then I'll know that you love me. He's not saying, Lord, if, if you just promise me security, like just pretend like you were joking about that sword in my house stuff. Don't do that. Just give, give me security. David's not praying for that. He's praying that the Lord would wash him clean from his sinfulness because he realizes that his biggest problem is not his lack of security. It's not his uncertain future. His biggest problem is he has sinned against the Lord. He needs to be cleansed. He needs the Lord to intervene. It's not that the Lord has sent the messenger and the message and now it's up to David to figure it out. But the Lord has sent the message through the messenger, and the Lord will be the one that renews and restores and saves David. What amazing grace. These words come to David from Nathan in response to his confession of repentance. The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Unmerited favor. Amazing grace. David deserved to die. The, The rich man didn't for stealing the sheep, but David killed somebody. The law says he should die. David had an affair. He committed adultery. The law says he should die. David had a double death sentence. And the Lord says, you shall not die. I've taken away your sin. So to the Nathans in the room this morning, you who you're hearing this, and um, by God's grace, you are repenting from sin. You are um, walking in the spirit. And so an appropriate thing to be thinking about as you digest this passage is, you know what? The Lord is sending me into someone's life. He's sending me into my spouse's life. He's sending me into my flatmate's life. This is called discipleship. This is how we help one another grow in Christ is that we speak the truth in love to one another. And so do you would-be Nathans I want to encourage you that this should be your goal. It's not to get the person to um, overcome what they've done to you. You know, they were, they were angry at you. Your goal in speaking to them is not just for them to say sorry to you. It's first and foremost to help them see that they have sinned against the Lord. And that it's only by his grace that they could be saved. Make sure that you keep the goal in mind that it's not reconciliation with you first that's the problem. They need to be reconciled with the Lord before they can be reconciled with others. 
and to the Davids in this room. Those of you who are struggling with secret sin. I didn't even have to mention anything. As soon as you read the passage, you, you're like, yep, I'm the man. I'm the woman. I'm the one who's, who's living in secret sin. Come to the Lord in repentance. Come to the Lord like David. I've sinned against you. Purge me and make me clean. Let today be the day where no longer do you live in hypocrisy, but you're purged, cleansed, forgiven. Don't live in the displeasure of the Lord, but receive his message to you. You see, this this passage ends on a very sad note. In verse 14, after he tells David that the Lord has put away his sin and he won't die. Remember, David deserves to die. But Nathan says, no, I'm gonna, the Lord's going to put that away. You're not going to die. But the child will die. David and Bathsheba's child, the result of their sin together, is going to die. Now, this verse 14 is a little bit difficult to translate Uh, In the ESV, it says that because David utterly scorned the Lord, the child will die. Other translations, and you might see a footnote in your ESV, but other translations say that because you've given an occasion for the enemies of the Lord to scorn him, the baby will die. So it's either David's scorning of the Lord, or it's because the sin that he, he committed gave the enemies of the Lord an occasion to mock Israel, that's why the baby needs to die. It's kind of getting at the same idea, though. And the idea is that this baby comes to represent and and have the guiltiness placed on it. It is embodying the sin. It is the result of the sin. It's giving the enemies an opportunity to say, see, Israel's just like us. Their kings do wicked things, and they prosper. Same as us. And maybe David started to think the same thing. Like, oh, man, I probably shouldn't have done that, but it seemed like it's all okay. And the Lord is saying, no. There has to be a punishment for sin. And doesn't this make us think of another child that's to be born? In David's hometown, a couple hundred years later, there would be another child that's born. Another child that would take upon the sin of others onto himself and die so that they could live. Jesus was not just the son of man. He was the son of God. And he didn't just take one person's sin on his shoulders, but he took the sin of the world on his shoulders innocent, nothing in him that deserved to die, and yet he willingly took it on so that others may live. God the Father gave his son so that the world could experience salvation. Think of it this way, to lean on another one of the the metaphors in this passage. Jesus would be the lamb that would die not for the gain of the rich man who thinks he's in need of nothing and deserves everything, 
but he would die for the poor men that need everything and know that they deserve nothing. That's Jesus. That is our Savior. He is the one who takes our sin upon himself, and he is the one when Satan tempts us to despair, when Satan tempts us to despair, when we know that we're the man, when we know that we're the woman, Satan tempts us and he says, you're right. And you're wrong. And you're always going to be wrong. You're always going to be a hypocrite. And you're always going to live in shame. When Satan tempts you to despair, upward you look. And you see him there who made an end of all your sin. And because the sinless Savior died, your sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon you. Friends, that's the hope of this passage. The hope of this passage is that Jesus saves. The Lord is displeased with sin. The Lord will go after those whom he loves He will send his messengers. He will speak the truth to them. And in their repentance, they find salvation. We're going to turn our eyes and our hearts now to receive communion, to remember the death of Christ, to remember what he did on the cross for us. We're going to remember that by taking bread and taking a cup. The bread symbolizing the perfect life that Jesus lived on our behalf. He never committed any sin. He never did anything wrong. He never did anything that would make him deserve to die. And yet the cup, his blood, signifying his death that he died on our behalf. Now, especially in light of this passage that we've been looking at, it's important to remind you what Paul says in the New Testament about who should be taking the cup and the bread. 1 Corinthians 11 says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So friends, again, if if you have repented of your sins and you're believing the gospel that you have heard already spoken here today and we've sung about and rejoiced in, then we want to welcome you to participate in this meal with us. But if, in thinking through this passage, you're realizing that there's some things I need to deal with in my heart. There's some hypocrisy that, that I've allowed to take root. And I need to deal with this before the Lord then we want to encourage you to let the cup and the bread pass by, to use this as an opportunity of repentance, of coming to the Lord saying, against you and you only have I sinned. And join us next time when we take communion celebrating Christ together. Now before we do this, I want to take a moment of silence so that we can have an opportunity to reflect on that and to think of whether we might take it in a way that honors the Lord. So join me in a moment of silence. Father, you're so, you're so gracious towards us. Lord, like David, we're, we're prone to sin. Even on our best days, we're a step away from the worst of sin.
So Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death, his resurrection, that he's saved us from death. He's given us eternal life. And we can walk in newness of life. We can have confidence that you are saving us. We have an inheritance that's purchased for us because of Christ. So Father, for those in this room who believed and yet are struggling, Lord, restore to them the joy of their salvation. And Father, would we all uphold Christ as the cornerstone of our lives? And it's in his name we pray, amen.